I am unwilling to give up, that I will start over from scratch as many times as it takes to get where I want to be. I want to be. You just want to make sure you will get knocked down, but just make sure you don't get knocked out, knocked out. So your only choice should be go focus on what you can control, control, control. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Kara Golden Show. Join me each week for inspiring conversations with some of the world's greatest leaders, We'll talk with founders, entrepreneurs, CEOs, and really some of the most interesting people of our time. Can't wait to get started. Let's go. Let's go. Hi, everyone. It's Kara Golden from The Kara Golden Show, and I am so, so thrilled to have my next guest here. We have Jake Anderson, who is the co-founder of Fertility IQ. And if you don't know what Fertility IQ is... You are going to be so, so inspired. He and his wife, Deborah, co-founded the company in 2015 after they had their own journey trying to figure out the whole fertility issue that exists in the world today. So after some fertility issues and miscarriages, they realized that reliable and unbiased resources and information is really, really tough to come by and how complicated it could be for most people who are forced to go into this and and take a closer look at it. So Fertility IQ was born to give people the data and the wisdom needed to help people make better decisions. And I'm super excited to have Jake on. We are friends as well. So if you hear us like going back and forth a little bit and it seems casual and natural, that's just because I think he's terrific. And uh, I'm really, really inspired by what he and his wife, Deborah, have created. So Welcome, Jake. Thank you. Pumped to be here, Kara. This is awesome. Super, super excited. So I've known each of you for a few years now. Like I said, I I knew a little bit about what you guys were going through, but let's start at the beginning. I'd love for you to kind of share with everybody who aren't familiar with the company, but sort of like how this all came about. Yeah, that's great. So uh, Deborah and I got married pretty young, I guess young for our generation. We were sort of, you know, late 20s, early 30s. You know, both of us wanted a family. Both of us didn't want a family, you know, immediately. And so what we had thought about doing was freezing embryos, not mm-hmm. eggs, because we, we knew that we were going to use my sperm um, and that I was going to be the, the genetic parent. And so we started to, to go through the embryo freezing process sort of preventatively. And um, to our astonishment, we just weren't making high quality enough embryos and um, came to the realization that we had a, a major fertility issue on our hands. We individually didn't have much life experience as people, let alone as a couple. Mm-hmm. And so the process was you know, just agonizing for us. It welled up all sorts of issues, money, sex, kids, the things people fight mm-hmm. about all the time. It came to the fore immediately and it, it placed a lot of pressure on the relationship when we weren't really prepared to absorb it. And, um, you know, for us, we sort of cascaded fertility clinic to clinic. Uh, we pretty much burned what little money we had in the process. And we, we just didn't know people had been through the process. We ourselves were on the younger side and sort of a little sheepish to talk about it. And likewise, you know, other people often don't necessarily want to, to go there. So for us, we had a, a lot of difficulty just getting good, rigorous information. And we were personally really thrashing in the process. And so the remit for us really was – can we get people the, the type of information and the quality of information we, we ourselves needed at the time? And, and so that's really where the, the need harks from. So 
I mean, you could find a clinic, right? You could do a Google search and find it. But what was kind of the point that you felt like, is this the right place? Is it going to work? What was it that was kind of the stumper for you? You know, that's a really wonderful question. I think as you matriculate your way through the process, all of it feels awful and unusual. You're getting asked very personal information and uh, the process can feel intrusive and invasive and expensive. So at no point are you settled and feeling, oh, this is natural. I am where I'm supposed to be. I think the point where we had started to realize we're, we're really probably not at the right place for us was um, when we started to see clerical issues um, coming up, mistakes being made. Hmm. We were starting to hear that some of the advice that we had been given, the data didn't support um, that it was necessarily the right information. For instance, they left Deborah's IUD in, um, and there's a lot of questions as to whether that was wise or not. So I think once we had one or two retrievals ultimately not culminate in embryos, we started to say, hey, this isn't this didn't feel good and the results haven't been great. And maybe it's time for us to, to look um, more broadly than we had supposed. We live in San Francisco and you know, there's, there, are, there are good clinics here. Um, but that's the point where we began to say, we need to hit the road. This is important enough and serious enough that we can't ring fence ourselves to the, the places that are nestly just in our backyard, given our circumstances. So knowing you a little bit, you were probably doing spreadsheets around, you know, what are the things that, you know, we would like to know, how do clinics stack up and um, medical care? I remember when you and I sat down for coffee you may not even remember this, but I was blown away by you telling me and how like the price varied so much. And then you didn't even know if it was going to work, right? I mean, there was just a state to state, I should say, that it was so varied. Do you remember that conversation? I mean, what was what were some of the things like that that were just shocking state to state? How often have you thought about learning a new language only to be stopped by that memory of yours from the last time you tried to learn a language when it didn't go so well? Okay, maybe it wasn't a language that you were interested in learning, or perhaps all those poorly written textbooks in your sixth grade class weren't that well written after all. I have a great tip for you. It's called Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program around available on desktop or app, no matter where you choose to learn it or what platform you choose to learn on, Rosetta Stone works and it truly immerses you in the language you choose to learn quicker and easier than you ever imagined to. Maybe you're getting ready to travel abroad this summer and you want to learn a bit of Portuguese, let's say, before your trip. Rosetta Stone can help. I know this firsthand as I did just this before traveling to Portugal last year. I learned Portuguese through Rosetta Stone, and by doing so, I not only got a better grasp of the spoken language of Portugal, but it got me very excited for the trip itself before I went. They even have a true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation as you are learning too. They've got you covered. Rosetta Stone's trusted experts are the real deal. They've been helping people just like you for over 30 years, helping millions of people to learn Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and my favorite, Portuguese. The lessons are five to 10 minutes long and include practical exercises so that you can pick up the language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. 
no English translations either, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in the language you are focused on, helping you get the long-term retention you are looking for. And who wouldn't want that? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Kara Golden Show listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today. In today's world, which I will admit can at times seem filled with too much of the wrong information, it's essential to find a good source that truly gets to the heart of what I want to know. I am super excited about our next sponsor as I've been a big fan of their content for some time now. That sponsor is the Washington Post. Their depth on topics from business to tech isn't just impressive, it's essential reading for me. Whether I'm catching up on the latest tech trends or understanding how the day's news truly impacts my family, the Washington Post is my trusted source. Let's talk specifics. Their business and tech coverage, absolutely top-notch. Just imagine having the most insightful articles at your fingertips, including the unparalleled AI reporting from Drew Harwell or the pulse on tech and online culture from Taylor Lorenz. And the best part? You can listen to articles just like you listen to this podcast, making it perfect for your busy lifestyle. I was just reading an article from one of my favorite Washington Post writers, Frances Stead Sellers. She covers entrepreneurs like myself, but also covers other interesting topics, including health, as well as some very interesting books. I also love getting their For You newsletter, which is their roundup of stories tailored just for my interests, right in my inbox every evening. The Washington Post app is super well done, I think. It makes it incredibly easy to stay up to date and follow my favorite journalists on the go. And if you ever thought that the Washington Post is just about politics, think again. They cover everything under the sun, from climate and culture to crosswords and cooking, providing a world of surprising stories and vital insights. Okay, enough of the love fest that I have for the Washington Post. Here's the deal. Being a listener of the Kara Golden Show has its benefits, and this one is too good to miss. Now is the time to sign up for the Washington Post. Go to WashingtonPost.com slash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. That's 80% off their typical offer. So this is truly a steal. Once again, that's WashingtonPost.com backslash Kara Golden to subscribe for just 50 cents per week for your first year. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I vividly remember it. Um, and it's, you know, even, you know, seven years since we've talked, still, still true, the disparity in price is enormous, not even state to state, sometimes within the state or even within the same city. Um, but for people who aren't, you know, familiar, um, you know, the cost to, to do IVF one cycle varies, but call it 15 to $25,000. Usually you need about two and a half cycles to bring home a baby, depending upon the age of the person with the, um, whose, um, eggs are being used. And so, you know, the grand total can be 50,000 bucks to bring home a baby from, from IVF. So, you know, that's, that's post-tax dollars, right. Mm -hmm. For many people. And so, 
um, the the sums are are, are are staggering. You know, while the the price clinic to clinic varies, the quality of the clinics varies dramatically, uh, and, and equally so. Um, you know, we're, I think we're of the view that if you go to a, a terrific place versus a mediocre place, the odds you bring home a baby um, can be twice as high mm-hmm. at, at the better place, really with the better laboratory. And so, yeah, the prices are staggering. The disparity and dispersion around price is enormous, but so is the dispersion around quality. And they're not always correlated. I think people assume I'm spending the most dough here. It's got to be the best place. And, um, you know, I'm not burdened by data, but I'm not, I, I don't believe after years of doing this, the data necessarily supports that. You know, and usually price is the big governor for people. A lot of people have fertility challenges. They simply can't find the dough to make this happen. Um, and so there's probably about half the people out there that could use treatment and benefit won't won't get it um, just because it's it's totally inaccessible for them. And will insurance, any insurance cover this? It varies. Mm-hmm. The reality is, is if you live in one of seven states, including Illinois, New York, Massachusetts, Delaware, if you have your insurance through the insurance company, not through your employer, there's a good chance there's some coverage. And if you work at a large progressive employer, there's a good chance there's some coverage. But probably that that's about 30% of the people um, that will, will try and get fertility treatment. The other 70% that could use it won't have really much in the way of assistance. Maybe some tests will be covered, some low-level treatments oral medication, but for the vast preponderance of people, it's 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 not covered. So you had worked in venture capital before. You were at Sequoia. D- do you want to share a little bit more about what Deborah was doing? Yeah. So um, I was sweeping the floors at Sequoia. I was probably the most junior, junior person they had there. I, I don't think I'm overstating that. I was really changing the toner. And Deborah at the at the time was um was an attorney at a at a large law firm. And um you know, for us, we had busy jobs. We had um, jobs where the pressure was immense. And, you know, just in life, you know, things got to give sometimes. And I think both of us felt like we were having immense pressure trying to um, work on the marriage, preserve the marriage, build a family and keep our jobs. Let's keep it, let alone, you know, let alone, you know, succeed in it. And, um, you know, I just think there are periods where people realize something's g- going to give here. And I think that's a period a lot of people encounter as they build their family. It's excruciating. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially if you're dealing with something as stressful as trying to figure out, you know, how do we do this, right? Something that's so important as building a family, I can totally imagine. So you hadn't started a company, neither of you, obviously very smart, very capable people, but hadn't started a company, hadn't started a company together either. Were you nervous? Like, what if I fail? I mean, what if this thing doesn't work? Is it just, I mean, this is going to be awful. I mean, how did you think about this? I would love to hear your thoughts on the subject too. So our therapist had pointed out that Deborah and I, we're sometimes at our best when we're working together, Mm -hmm. when there's a, a common thing and we both care and we're on the same page. And she had sort of suggested, you know, this is, this is a subject you both care about. And it would be interesting to see what you can do about it. And so sort of at her suggestion, we began to to get to work on it. You know, it's interesting. I think a lot of people think when couples try to build a business, it won't succeed. At Sequoia, we actually had a lot of success investing in founders that had a relationship. I believe that was the case with Cisco. I believe that was the case with House. I believe there's, I mean, there's a lot of examples where it really, it worked. It worked, yeah. Um, and um, and so I 
I had sort of been positively predisposed. And every, you know, listen, I mean, there's a lot to navigate in terms of making sure, you know, one thing doesn't bleed into the other. But I think people forget about all the benefits. You don't really care who gets credit. You don't care about who gets what level of equity. You know, that partner or spouse of yours, they understand if you need to do something for work, you understand if they need to do something for work and you're, they're not just being selfish with their career. And so you, just, I think it hangs together rather nicely. And I think from a personal perspective, you learn to have a newfound appreciation for what your partner's talents are. It used to be with Deborah and me, Deborah's talents were always on display in a zero sum way. Like she won the political argument. She figured out the quicker route home. And I always sometimes felt a little diminished when she was right. <laughs> When our backs are against the wall and it's us against the world, I'm like, you know, thank God she has these talents because I don't and we so need them. Yeah. And I think in many ways, you know, the the business has benefited. I think the relationships benefited from it. You know, nothing's perfect in life, but I think it's been – I think it's actually been a net positive Um and I'd just be curious about like your own reflections on that concept because obviously you and Theo, what you've done is – Herculean. It's a hard business to be in. Yeah. And um, you're, you're also raising kids and have a lot of demands. Well, it's funny because I never thought about working with him. I think he always kind of had this idea that I did something that he didn't really know how to do in terms of marketing and building a brand and storytelling and doing a lot of those things that he thought were hard. And so when I had this idea he was really excited to be helpful with it. But it's it's interesting because I think as time has gone on and your kids are younger than ours, I think that the other thing that has sort of come out is that our family actually recognizes that we have each other's back, right? And so, and we divide and conquer. And, you know, there are times when, the kids have needed him more than me and vice versa. And, and, you know, there's no discussion about it. Well, you did that last week and now I need to do this or whatever, or one of us has to travel and then the other one stays home, whatever. So it actually has really worked. And we still have to this day different skill sets, but I would say that we're able to jump in on, you know, I can actually run a product at our plants and, and, you know, he's, I think, better at it, you know, and he's more curious about it and and enjoys it more. But it's not to say that I can't do it. And I think that the same is is probably true for you guys. It's like, you know, all aspects of the business, and you just sort of divide and conquer on it. But it's something that a lot of people actually say, we heard it early on. Um, we didn't hear it from Sequoia when we were pitching Sequoia, but it was something that a few different investment firms said to us. And today I would say that many people invest or don't invest based on sort of their own opinions, right? So maybe they are imagining I could never work with my spouse, right? And then they're like, there's no way that this is going to work. But I think it does work for some people, and I can totally imagine you and Deborah it working for you guys. Yeah, it's worked. It, I, I do think um, it has worked. And there's just certain things where it's just very clear. One of us has just better instincts than the yeah. other person. And at some point, it just becomes obvious, you know, that's a Deborah thing or that's a Jake thing. And and we probably won't lose too much time debating who's going to be get the final say mm-hmm. if there's disagreement on it. And, you know... It's a long time that hopefully we'll still be in business and hopefully, you know, still be married. But, you know, 
eight to 10 years into both, I feel pretty good about the decision. I love it. So when people go to the Fertility IQ site, what is the key thing that I guess people can learn, but also people come there first for? Yeah, that's interesting. What people find are two things if they come to the site. They will be able to find courses on specific subjects, PCOS, endometriosis, IVF, using donor egg, really taught by the foremost expert in the field. These are really the division chiefs at Harvard, Stanford, Hopkins, Columbia, Yale, Northwestern, NYU. So you're getting expert opinion from people that are otherwise difficult to access. Um, And so you and or a partner can watch the thing have the same information, make a more harmonized decision, or at least have a more articulate discussion with whoever your provider may be mm-hmm. the next day. So we have courses and we've got about you know 40 to 60 of them. And then we have these courses in about 40 languages um, and, and for 40 different countries. The second thing that we've got is reviews of doctors and clinics. So these are um, assessments penned by verified patients, provide us a document, proves they were treated there, and where they really reflect upon who they are, how they were treated, the drugs they were given, the costs they incurred, the strengths of the place, the weaknesses of the place. And that's really down to the doctor, the clinic, the billing department, the nursing team. And the value here is you can come to the site and filter and say, hey, I am uh, an African-American woman. I have uterine fibroids. I'm going to use donor sperm and I live in Chicago. I really want to hear from people like me because um, hearing from people like you is important in this process. And then you're able to hear from people like you, um, their views on all the doctors and clinics. And then it's hopefully going to help you understand the the strengths and the weaknesses of those places. So you can make a decision on where to go, when to stay, when to move on. And in our field, there's a real offline failure. People don't talk about this stuff. Like they talk about a cardiologist or a dentist Mm -hmm. um, because there's so much shame sometimes and stigma. And so this is, hopefully this really helps address an offline failure of where you're you're not able to get that level of detail and help from, you know, your community like you otherwise would in a different, you know, disease state. And how do doctors feel about this? You know, that's really interesting. Um, nobody likes to be reviewed. I would hate <laughs> to have somebody looking over my shoulder and provide a public assessment of sure. how I did every day. I think um, for many clinicians, at first it was unsettling. You know, even if they thought nine out of 10 patients really admire my work and think that I'm helpful. They're all very sensitive to the fact that our field has a lot of failure attached to it. IVF doesn't work a lot of times. People feel demoralized and it's easy to point fingers. And I think a lot of clinicians were fearful that um, it would really be the people that have a grievance or an ax grind that would write an assessment. And I think, you know, we have now 50,000 assessments. There's only a thousand fertility doctors. And I think we got a big enough sample size now where people realize this is pretty representative of the sentiment mm-hmm. on me. And, but you know, that took us a long time. And so, you know, for, I think the first few years, people were nervous and wary. Um, but I, I think these days, I think clinicians are on the reviews. I think they're you know, neutral to relatively positive. Like this is discipline. This is rigorous. This is representative. And on the courses, I think they're universally effusive. I think many of them think if I had all day to spend with this patient, this is the type of education I'd want to give them. But I have a um, waiting room full of patients. I don't have time to explain cellular biology. And so having them have access to this course so that when they come back, we can have a relevant discussion on this, on the really the, the important things. I think many of them see that as really emancipating themselves and giving themselves more time to devote to patients on the things that they're they're really expert on. And so I think overall it's pretty positive now. 
So when did you know this was going to be a business that was going to stick? You know, that you were also, you've talked about being bootstrapped and that you've made the decision not to go out and raise. What right. What was the point where you said, okay, we're going to, Deborah, we're not going to have to go back to being in our old jobs and, yeah. you know, this is, this is working. Yeah. I mean, for me, the day that I celebrate, and I think this is true for Deborah, is not the day we started. Mm-hmm. It's the day that we knew we were going to make it. It's the day that we knew that our baby was going to leave the NICU and was going to live. And I'm talking about the business. And for us, it's when we became cash flow positive, where it went from this is a thing, um, and it may be on life support, and we may have to beg people to subsidize it. We may have to beg customers to show up. We'll have to contort to whatever whim they have of what they think this should be to being cash flow positive and to being financially sturdy. And at that point, you know, we knew that we were going to be in control of our own destiny and we could do the things that we felt like were right for the business. And um, in my mind, that's the seminal date. That's Mm -hmm. the seminal moment. And um, in life's very scary, I think up until that moment. And one of the things that we've chosen to do is allow employers to pay us so their employees can access the offering. And Hmm. um, that stabilized the business. You know, we have a lot of Fortune 50 clients. They sign three to five year contracts. They're happy. They pay their bills on time. It allows us to build more products. It allows us to think about what we need to add and when. And I think that level of stability is just the difference between making it or or not. And, you know, we're a little delusional from the first five years. I think we just sort of assume we build something great. We throw a party, people are going to show up Mm -hmm. and they're going to take out their credit card. This is expensive stuff. What we have is unique and they'll want to pay. And I'm relieved that we found a business model where we weren't subject to the vicissitudes of whether an end user just felt like paying that day. And so in my mind, that's the seminal moment. When we became cash flow positive and sturdy and healthy is the day I knew that this would endure. Mm-hmm. And until then, I think we were delusional in thinking it would just happen. So that's your main business model is that through employers and and yeah. get it, and and is that how they you get the word out primarily too? I mean, I would guess there's a word of mouth as well. But. Yeah, yeah, that's you know the um people come to the site either because their employer covers all the cost or because um their doctors told them or they found it on on Google. So our tributaries of who comes to the site it's about fifty percent employees of um, clients and fifty percent kind of people off the street. Um, who've just heard from their their doctor or their clinic or on on Google. In our minds, you know, we really have two masters to serve here. The we really the end user is our our the primary person we're looking out for. If we don't do a good job serving them, it, it kind of doesn't matter mm-hmm. what or who else. Um, but at the same time, you know, we have employers that care deeply about the subject, and and we also need to serve those employers. They'll have ideas about. Um, courses that should be built. They'll have ideas about regions that are going to be really relevant. You know, as an example, we have uh, clients that had a presence in Russia. They're shutting down their Russian offices. Their employees were going to be in Armenia. And what did we have for employees in Yerevan in Mm. Armenia? And so, you know, reacting to what our clients see as being pertinent um, is also immensely important 
to to us. And um, you know, often there's no there's no separation between what the end user needs and what the employer needs. But sometimes there is, and having to think through sequencing is is really important for us. Interesting. So you are available outside of the U.S. as well. That's a major focus of ours. You know, I think one of the things that's astonishing in our field is how different these processes look, mm-hmm. state to state in the U.S., but certainly country to country. So as an example, if you're a woman who wants to freeze her eggs in the U.S., you can do whatever you want. If you're going to do it in the U.K., you got 10 years to use the eggs. Otherwise, you can't. You do it in Hong Kong, you can freeze your eggs, but you got to come back with a quote unquote husband's sperm. And if you do in China, you go to jail. So like, it's totally different wow. what you can do in which country. And then of course, you know, the religious, the financial considerations, the legal considerations, they're really different. And so you've got to rebuild the offering for different regions and countries. It's been intellectually fascinating, but it's also immensely demanding and it's um and it's something that you know it's been a focus of ours for the last 3 to 5 years and these days we serve as many people not in the US as in is in the US so as an entrepreneur knowing what you know today is there something you do over when you first started i think the major thing um where we didn't step in it but we almost did was not figuring out monetization earlier. I think, you know, online businesses, community-based businesses, California, there's this ethos of we'd rather have you stay than pay. We're going to build a community and at some point somebody's going to ascribe a lot of value to it. And and I think we were victims of some of that that thinking. Mm-hmm. And we just sort of assumed if we have a great product and people show up like, you know, eventually we'll have a sturdy business. Um And I think we waited too long to really be sure around that. Now, ultimately, it ended up being okay. But when I look back in hindsight, what what could have really screwed things up is I think if we had let that thinking prevail and go on for too long, we would have been surprised. I think the thing we did right, though, is realize we're not in a big market. This is – it's, it happens to a lot of people, but with our business model, the business can only be so big. Mm-hmm. We knew the business could only be so big. We were reluctant and decided not to take money because we knew we couldn't give people a big return. And we didn't want to mislead them and think that this was going to be bigger than it was. And as a result, we were very slow to spend money. We didn't take a salary for seven years. I mean, that's two people in a family not taking a salary. It was really painful. Um, and we hired very parsimoniously and only when it was clear that that role was needed. And so the thing that we did r- right around this was being very, very smart, I think, and reluctant to add expense. And that's the flip side of having been too timid to try and push monetization is we also, I think, in the back of our minds knew we got to be really careful with money here because we're not going to get it from elsewhere. Definitely. Has it taken longer than you thought? You know... I think, uh, I mean, it's, it's been an odyssey. Yeah, <laughs> I think like yeah. that's, you know, that's, that's my, my view, but my horizon is different. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, this is, even though we're based in SF and this is an online business, it's still a family business, like a tire shop or a, a dental office. Like this is something we want to build and run for, for the rest of our lives. And so even though it's taken a long time to get to this period in my mind, it's still the the end of the beginning. Mm-hmm. And so I'm not frustrated by the amount of time because I think we're really, you know, this is a house of brick and one that we want to build for 
for a long time. But I do think the adage of it's it's going to be two to three times longer, two to three times more expensive to, to get most stuff done. I think a, a lot of that that would apply here. But I will say that once the business has become profitable, things happen faster. We're able to step on the gas and be decisive because we know we have the resources and we know the people around us are committed to, to doing it. And so we can be a bit more decisive versus the early years where we had to agonize over every decision, even if it was apparent it was necessary. How do you feel when consumers are writing to you and telling you that I would imagine you get these emails like, thank you so much. You helped me figure out the black box and, and, you know, you don't even know these people, right? They're in Indiana or. I remember when Theo was telling me what it was like to get an email from, I think a kid in Alabama who was suffering with a high BMI, getting access to healthy food and drink was hard. And how that person felt like hint and transform what their life could be. And I remember how that affected Theo. And and I think it affects us the same way. You know, it's um, the scar tissue. We have around our own experiences visceral. We still feel the pain Mm -hmm. of when you feel like your relationship's not going to make it. The thing you're helping for in life is not going to happen. And the immense relief when you feel like there's a glimmer of hope. And so I think when people give us a signal that that's happening for them, you know, we're overjoyed. And if they attribute any of it or part of it to us, you know, we're, we're ecstatic about it. I'm the type of person that thrives on what people say about me, which cuts both ways. I mean, it's devastating when people, when people tell you you didn't do your job and it affects me deeply. And so, um, I'm ecstatic when we get that feedback. I, to be honest, have tried to attenuate my own emotions around it because, um, you know, when the feedback comes back differently, sometimes, you know, there's a, there's rightfully a lot of soul searching. Um, but, um, um, but we take the feedback to heart no matter what. And so I think we're better for it. And some days, you know, we feel like we've, we've done our job and this will be our legacy. And there are other days where, you know, we feel like we've got more to do and thank God the clock keeps going so we can we can keep improving things. Yeah. Well, I love what you're doing. And I think the fact that you're making things possible for many, many people, you can't solve all the problems for people, unfortunately, but you're definitely solving it for many. And when you're trying to really help people uh, with a health issue, as I always say, that if you don't have your health, you have nothing. Doesn't matter how much money you have or any of those things. It's what your titles were, any of those things. It's like, you know, there are things that are really hard for people. And if you can just give a few of those people a glimmer of hope, I think that's a really powerful thing and a great legacy uh, to have. And I should mention you have two kids uh, now, and uh, which is so, so great. So I I love it. Thank you. You know, I mean, having kids, you know, there were people that said, once you get your kids, you're going to stop caring about this. You're going to start focusing on pre-K. And and for us, you know, I mean, I my kid's the most important thing in my life by far. I'll run through walls to make sure everybody who wants to get a kid gets one. Adopt, foster, fertility, unaided conception. In my mind, love is love. And so I think if anything, it's having our kids strengthen our resolve to keep going rather than sapped us of it. 
Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you again. And thanks for sharing all of, you know, the lessons of the build, the company, everything. And please say hello to Deborah as well. We're really, really excited about everything you're doing. And we'll put everything in the show notes for all the information on both of you and then also Fertility IQ as well. So thanks again. Thanks all for listening to this episode. We hope you enjoyed it. And I want to thank all of our guests and our sponsors. And finally, our listeners, keep the great comments coming in. And one final plug, if you have not read or listened to my book, Undaunted, please do so. You will hear all about my journey, including founding, scaling, and building the company that I founded, Hint. We are here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and goodbye for now. Before we sign off, I want to talk to you about fear. People like to talk about fearless leaders, but achieving big goals isn't about fearlessness. Successful leaders recognize their fears and decide to deal with them head on in order to move forward. This is where my new book, Undaunted, comes in. This book is designed for anyone who wants to succeed in the face of fear, overcome doubts, and live a little undaunted. Order your copy today at undauntedthebook.com and learn how to look your doubts and doubters in the eye and achieve your dreams. For a limited time, you'll also receive a free case of Hint Water. Do you have a question for me or want to nominate an innovator to Spotlight? Send me a tweet at Kara Golden and let me know. And if you like what you heard, please leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow along with me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn at Kara Golden. Golden. Thanks for listening.